Hello, and welcome to Regrets I've Had a Few. I'm Paul Hunter, Artistic Director of Told by an Idiot, and this is a podcast where I talk to friends and colleagues delving into what made them the person they are today. Hello, and welcome. My guest this month is one of Britain's most original writers. He operates at the intersection of science and literature and is consistently uncategorizable. From his wonderfully poetic and eclectic collection of mini-narratives that make up The Absent Therapist, to his astonishing award-winning novel Murmur, there's no one quite like him. Welcome, Will Eaves. Very nice to be here. Thank you, Paul. Well, it's lovely to to have you join us. And um, I should say... I've missed uh, our uh, chats down at the BFI, and we were just talking before this, uh, so this makes up for it in some way, uh, although we are they, recording it. They seem so long ago, don't they? I'm, I'm assuming they must have been before before COVID, although it, it definitely, like, yeah. Def- yeah. definitely a strange period when the world felt normal. But mm. we won't dwell on that. We'll dwell on other things now. Obviously, I'm going to dwell largely on your brilliant writing, which has had a big impact on me. Um, uh, but I want to start with. Uh, performance, because I know that's also something close to your heart yeah. and in your life. Um, and I want to take you way back. Do you have any memory of any very early performance that you might have done, whether it was in school or or church? Or uh, uh, it's a really interesting question. I mean, I um, I suppose that quite a lot of my early experience of acting and singing and playing music was barely conscious in a way. Uh, I grew up in a rather sort of, uh, it felt like quite a large family, although it probably wasn't very you know large for the time, four, four kids. Um, and I shared a room with my brother and he was quite a sort of very funny person, but a, but a real introvert. And I was sort of slightly different, I suppose. And I was drawn to this piano that stood rather uselessly in our shared bedroom. Um, and he had his sort of little bed with toy soldiers on one side. And I had um, my kind of um, sort of rather, it's almost a cot, really. It was a rather, rather small bed on the other. But the, but the, um, the piano was a, was a wonderful iron frame instrument inherited from my grandmother and it had superb marquetry on it. Uh, very simple, but superb because it was all scored and engraved in various sort of floral patterns. And it was a Rudi Bach Zon piano. And I can't remember a time when I didn't want to sit at it and play it. Um, and it wasn't, I think, because I understood really what music was or felt that I had a musical gift. But it simply, it, this sort of, sort of jaw of teeth that were the keys invited me to lay my hands upon them and sort of move, move my fingers up and down. So I think that's my earliest memory of performance. And, and I think it was also a bit of a refuge. You know, I, it was identifiably mine and no one else's. No one else wanted to play it. No one else showed any interest. So it was a very plausible means of beating a retreat from quite a loud family. Oh, that's a that's a that's a very um that's a very fantastic insight into your childhood there a snapshot and I've got such a, that's a very very clear image was was theatre something that you were taken to did you go as a family or well I think I grew up at a time when 
you know, in the uh, rather like you, I'm sure, in the 70s. No, we didn't go um, as a family to theatre, but I was I was very drawn to um, film. There are a lot of good black and white films on telly in those days on BBC Two, and I sort of watched my way, um, you know, pretty religiously through the Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. Um, Sherlock Holmes movies oh, and brilliant. also the sort of brilliant. early 1930s um, Universal Studios uh, horror movies which were on very late at night and if I went to bed yeah. early I was allowed to then get up again and, and watch these you know they were only about sort of 50 minutes long but very although I didn't realize at the time very heavily influenced by German expressionism and I liked I loved all the shadow play that if, you, if you're looking for a kind of trope in 1930s film, it's often sort of shadows fighting each other, which is sort of taken straight from Dr. Caligari, which I sort yeah. of subsequently found out was the case. But, you know, and culminating, I suppose, in the fantastic shadow sword fight between Claude Rains and Basil Rathbone in The Adventures of Robin Hood. Yes. They come down the staircase. So I think it was probably cinema rather than theatre that originally took my fancy. But I, I, when when I did come to sort of be in school plays and things, um, I can't remember a time when it didn't feel very natural to me to <laughs> <laughs> to want to want to get on the stage and show off. And there's no way of making it, you know, sound like anything other than it was. <laughs> the need to throw um, one's inner life into sharp relief and i think that's probably what's behind a lot of performance for a lot of people it's not actually it's not so much that they consciously want to show off it's that it's it's such a kind of sort of necessary purge for the rest of your life which is so interior i think that's a, it's very interesting coming back to the beginning of that when you mentioned cinema and those films that were shown when we were kids you know being of a similar age and I totally remember watching those double bills of those uh, the, the 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 Universal horrors. I also remember being obsessed with Jimmy Cagney and the and the the Warner Brothers gangster movies, which were yeah. also shown. Um, and I don't know about you, but I have a memory. This might have been on a Sunday evening where they they used to show a lot of European films, which I was far too young to watch, and my parents <laughs> br brilliantly. And I think rather neglectfully, just let me stay up. Right? I don't think it was anything about broadening my mind. It was just them not being conscious. Do you, did you ever, uh, and I have a memory, very vivid memory of seeing Don't Look Now when I was far too young to see it and being terrified by the blind woman who could see. And yes. Do, do you I, remember I think, those kind of movies? Yes, I do. It was, it was, it was after the 9.30 watershed, wasn't it, on a Sunday evening? And you yes. really just reminded me of it now. But um, yeah, I do. That, and, you know, they, 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 you simply wouldn't, they wouldn't be programmed now for any number of reasons. But yeah, no. I mean, in the Nick Roeg films, occasionally you've got these kind of quite new, movies and i guess don't look now is 1972 73 so it was only about five years old by the time yeah, yeah. watching it um and i i'm not sure when i first saw that i think i saw it a bit later than that and i remember similarly being um you know being uh it's a very scary movie and it's and, it, and it's and it's very brilliantly done and there's a lot of silence in it yes it's unusual for the time uh, not least the extraordinary sex scene, you know, which I think got yes. cut out for the TV. It or, was, it was. A, it was yeah. 
inevitably it was removed before, before it they was and then i then i remember you know i went to this sort of big but quite in i think in a way quite enlightened comprehensive and we had a film club in the sixth form oh. which was shared with all the other schools in bath and it was actually a real highlight of the um i think we went had a film every two weeks or something and i was on the committee one year choosing films and i chose don't look now ah and um, there was, I think there must have been some debate, you know, in the staff room about whether this was really suitable material for <laughs> children who weren't yet 18. But anyway, we got the film and it was a, it was an intact, you know, edition. And um, you could have heard a pin drop, of course. <laughs> all these, <laughs> I, I think all these people with their sort of, you know, it, you know, emergent couples, the emergent boyfriends and girlfriends suddenly having this kind of, you're being dropped in at the deep end. This is how it's done, lads. <laughs> no also, one said a word. I, I I can imagine as you curated that particular season when you were on the committee, that was probably one of your hit films of that season. I imagine. I think in, it in was. many ways that. And there was another Donald Sutherland movie, which was a which was a terrible movie, really, but but was very enjoyable. Called Eye of the Needle, um, which was oh, a sort I don't of. Know that. Eye of the Needle. It's um, it, it's a terrible World War Two thriller set on a sort of abandoned rock somewhere. Um, Kate Nelligan and Donald Sutherland, and it's it's there's there's a lot of that kind of rather unnecessary seventies and eighties female nudity in it, where sort of people are half yes. caught in the threshold. They're sort of you know <laughs> with nothing on. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Well, we can move. We can move swiftly on from that. Will. And I suppose we talk about performance. What about your early memories of writing? When was writing something that you started to do? Uh, and how did it? So happen? that is that has a very clear point of origin. Um, my brother was a writer, and a very good one, uh, in, in my memory. Um, he's. Uh, we, I don't have much to do with him anymore. He's. He's quite a. I mean, I don't think I'm betraying him, but he's quite a difficult character, and, and I'm sure he he may think the same of me. Um, but he was a very good writer, and he had these series of red and black notebooks in which he wrote in a marvelous kind of cursive hand uh, these tales of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, I mean, writing seemed to come to him so naturally. It just flowed out of him in this stream of sort of wonderfully musical prose, um, but accurate and witty and um, marvellously shaped argument at the same time. It was like a kind of little education in itself. And we went on holiday and he bought a particular notebook abroad. It was a grey notebook. Or, or my mother bought it for him. And he filled it with these extraordinary drawings of um, battles and Borodino and then sort of began rewriting the story of the Napoleonic Wars in his own in his own voice. And of course, I didn't you know, I didn't read them too much later. And all I wanted to do was sort of emulate the, the act of writing. I didn't I mean, I knew I couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. And I was I was only about seven. So I asked for a smaller notebook. And without thinking about it, I too hard. I'd I'd read and really enjoyed, and had read to me um, things like Peacock Pie by Walter de la Mer, and um, 
again, I can't remember making the conscious decision, but I started writing poems. So the first things I wrote were poems. And I sort of filled the notebook with these poems and they were, they were full of that kind of slightly dementing perception of um, the world and freedom that you have when you don't know what you're doing and don't care what you're doing for the first time. Mm -hmm. And one way of describing that is saying, as you know, as Winnicott would say, that it's it's pure play. But I'm not sure that it is pure play because you do it quite seriously. You know, if you if you if you look at a child making their first steps in an art form, uh, it, I, I always feel it's not quite accurate to say they're just playing. Play is something else. What they're doing is trying to be is trying to be serious. Actually, you know, e even if they're writing funny stories, they're trying to. Mm. What it, it always seems to me that what a child really wants is to be taken seriously, and, and not really just as a child. And that's the problem, of course. That's why, I mean, I think if I were a child now, I'd find the whole kind of YA fiction thing very difficult to handle. I'd feel patronised. But I mean, I know that's a minority view. But I don't know. It's interesting when you touch on that idea of play. And it's something, obviously, that lies at the heart of our work at Told by an Idiot. But we take the notion of play very seriously. Yeah. It's a, I, I, I very consciously don't think there is a contradiction in that at all i think well that's, that's a, a good way of putting uh, it isn't I, it i mean i suppose that um what you're trying to find often is a way of being you know productively disinhibited again you know once you get once yes. you get past a certain point in life so many things crop up um you know be they social or familial or or, or, or you know intellectual that that make you feel you 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 can't freewheel um yeah definitely you, you, yeah. and i it it's interesting obviously you touch on the notion of the first things that you were drawn to writing as a, or an expression in, in writing was the poetry which clearly has stayed with you always in various shapes and forms in your writing there's a deep sense of poetry to it which is extraordinary combined obviously with many other things but you then obviously went through school and and then to university and it was university where the acting thing kicked in i think or... it was um i think i sort of did and and did really enjoy doing a you know an, an english degree and it was it was marvelous to be um in a place that had such an you know great sort of libraries and resources um but i think that I, my unofficial degree was sort of in light entertainment really um, <laughs> You know, I I tell you a book that I'd read at the time that made a big impression on me because I was, you know, and I was sort of in the, I, I was, you know, I knew I was gay, but I was in the closet and I didn't know what to do about that. And so it, it, it was a sort of acting was a salutary distraction in some ways from some of yeah. some of that. I don't know if it was anxiety. I think it was anxiety about it, really. And you just it was at the very time that, you know, the AIDS pandemic had a stranglehold on yeah. activities and I didn't. I did I did and didn't want to be known for myself and being someone else having being given permission to be someone else or rather to be to be oneself in others shoes you know as Harry yeah. Walter put it in that, that lovely book she wrote in other people's shoes uh was very attractive and also a very good way of um a very good way of finding out 
it always seemed to me that 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 when you when you act you you take possession of something you know a stage but you have certain guy ropes and the guy ropes may be a script or they may be direction or they may be something that you've sort of arrived at as a troupe if it's a sort of semi-improvised thing but it's that idea of um yeah productively constrained freedom is, is yeah, a lovely totally, is, is, a, is a lovely totally thing uh, and it's yeah. a very it's it, you it it i think it's a very good way of sort of for me it's an amazingly important way of giving myself some giving actually a lot of my emotions uh some structure mm-hmm. when i felt when i felt the need otherwise at, this was at cambridge to you know, I was worried about how good my work was, whether I was really clever enough to be there. I never felt that particularly. Um, and I found, you know, the work ex- challenging and interesting, but difficult. And so there was there was always that sort of, am I good enough? Is this good enough thing that was going on with the university work? And, and none of that applied when you set foot on the stage because you just had to you- step into the moment. Absolutely, and and obviously, be utterly present, yeah. which is a which is a key thing. You mentioned you read a book, but you didn't I not? say what book it I, was. <laughs> the book was um, a liar's autobiography by Graham Chapman, ah. um, the one of the deceased members of the Monty Python team. Yeah, yeah. And to yeah. this day, I mean, he obviously had written it with about four other people, and it said it makes a joke of it halfway through. Barry Cryer and various other people that helped him <laughs> cobble it together because he was sort of you know half drunk most of the time but it is to this day i think one of the funniest books i've ever read it's very 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 good <laughs> i shall look that up very I very look good that up. I, I i like it when someone has a key book that's, yeah. uh, that they've read um and then did you uh, at what point did you decide to give acting a go if you sort of mean thinking okay now i'm gonna go well it, it it all it came as a it felt to me a very natural thing to do you know one, once i was up and running on a stage i mean i got very nervous i got very very nervous before every performance i would sort of religiously go through all my lines the afternoon yeah. before I had for everything whatever i did so i took it you know quite seriously i i think i decided well you said in our sort of pre on air exchange that you might touch lightly on the idea of regrets i mean i suppose there is it's it's not a major regret but it's it's of some regret to me that i didn't take the acting further because what happened was i i think i got into a couple of drama schools i actually can't now remember Webb douglas was one of them maybe central was the other or something but then of course the issue of money came up and i and i just didn't have any and my parents didn't have any and I'd had a grant to get through university, and I think it, it looked very unlikely that I would get another to do essentially a postgraduate course. So it just didn't look. It was the first time I became aware of actually there being financial differences between me and quite a lot of other people who yeah. went somewhere like that. And I don't say that in any kind of embittered way, but it was just a fact. Yeah, yeah, no, so for I, sure. I, 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 I'd it's done a... a lot of I'd done a lot of shows, and you know. And I'd felt quite at home. And I think 
I can't really tell what they were like. I'm sure they were just, you know, I, I'm sure they were just grandiose versions of school plays, really. But they felt like something. And I, yeah. you know, and I, 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 I felt it was something I could do. And then almost as I did it for a year and I got my equity card. And then almost as soon as I was doing it, I thought, I don't think this is going to be very easy for me to do. And it's probably not sensible and I haven't got the money and I might not be the sort of person just to stay at home waiting for the phone to ring. And there was an awful lot of you, you encountered everywhere you went, people saying, if there's something else you can do, you should do that. And I, to this day, don't. And was that? Sorry, to this day, I don't know whether that's actually good advice or not, really. No, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I remember being given advice by my sister and my mother, who were very concerned about me <laughs> from, from uh, uh, going into the world of show business for a variety of reasons. I think majorly because there was no context for it. My mom was a dinner lady and my dad was an electrician. And they had no, you know, this wasn't what people did from my part of Birmingham. But I remember being given the advice, um, why don't you go to university? You're good at English. You can get a degree and then you'll have something to fall back yeah. on. And I remember as an angry teenager shouting back, if I have something to fall back on, I will fall back on it. Well, you were and, just um, much, much, uh, though you probably didn't know it at the time, I think you were much wiser than, than I. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Well, no, it's that. absolutely true. I think, and I think that's been a huge, I mean, I still have this sense that it's a very, very powerful thing with me. And in, in a sense, life has gone on too far for me to quite disentangle it. But I, I've had, such a strong sense all my life that I'm not quite doing the thing I should be doing. Even with your yeah. writing? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, wow. Big parts. That's really, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah, because I don't that's... know um, what, in, in a sense, I don't know what that thing should be anymore. And it's a source of some grief to me. Uh, I think the thing is, when you do something for long enough, of course, it does become your nature. It becomes the thing. It's part of it's all very well going to a therapist and saying, well, of course, it's not you. It's what you do. But but the two things become more or less indistinguishable from each other after a certain point. And the fact is that I have in terms of artistic production, most of it has been writing, although only now and recently, I mean, absent therapist in a way gave me a chance to go back to being an actor again because yes yes because i suddenly realized that the way to solve a particular problem i had about you know what do i write next was simply to scour my notebooks for any kind of likely situation and instead of turning it into a sort of full-scale narrative simply to turn the notes into um monologues or, or or vignette and that and that's what's so brilliant about it will that's what's so fantastic is when you read it and i've seen you do bits of it in a sense in a performative yeah. way but that's what makes it so unique i think it's kind of it grabs you in a very very particular way and maybe some of that is from a kind of performance i think it is when it's words on I, the and i always love the kind of performance that you know starts that where you where you're sort of dropped in something straight away you know you, you you, you yes. um, there's next to no setup. You're suddenly in yes. a situation. 
you don't quite know why you're in it and you don't necessarily know even yeah. who's speaking. Totally uh, agree. You know, totally and agree. It, because it's it it's interesting that the spectator or the reader is immediately curious and it's disorientating and it's funny. Um, yeah. And I love making people laugh. I mean, I, I do have a strong memory of saying to my friend Heather at school what I'd really like. I, I'd actually like to be a, you know, a comedian. Um, and <laughs> it, whether I did really want that or not is sort of not the point. I think I was saying at the time something quite true. And funnily enough, I've just I've just started doing these sort of videos of um, just out of boredom or frustration, again, with writing, I'm, I'm stuck with a bit of writing. And so I've started doing these sort of characters who are some of them based on real people, many of them not, which are usually just responses to things I've heard. And they're just two minute little versions of absent therapist type things mm. in different voices. And I like the way that different personae and different accents and different attitudes give you a view of different possibilities about yourself and about other people. And they remind you that we are aspectual, you know, that there's actually many different ways of looking at the same mountain or the same person. Yeah. And I love all that. I mean, that's, well, that's why I, I think it's worth saying for people, maybe listeners who don't know that, collection or that book is it's very funny that's also why i really liked it thank you it, it it's uh it comes it, it really made me laugh and and uh, i think that that's well obviously i'm i'm very fascinated by comedy in terms of what we do with the yeah. company and, and we we often talk about trying to inhabit the space between laughter and pain and we find that a very creative place to be and it, it struck me at times that in your work I've had a similar kind of thing where I go I'm not not, not to pigeonhole it but I felt oh, I really like the place that you put the reader in and you're very you know, I'm you're so very pleased I'm so you... pleased you think that it's a, just it's a really so it's an absolutely thrilling thing to hear thank you well I it's a it's this brings me I suppose to uh, to uh, I, I'm sorry it had a big effect on me murmur which obviously was an incredibly rightfully successful book for you and you you you're very funny when you talk about how some of your early novels didn't sell many copies you you off you know you say yourself um, and were you surprised how surprised or were you surprised that a book that is very very in some ways very experimental with its form and its style um became a, a you know a, an award-winning did it surprise you yeah in, in, in yeah a way, it, or? It, it did i mean i i think i have to um, I did feel I was flying blind a lot of the time while I was writing it. Yeah. it, it the, the only thing that guided me, actually, rather like this business of being on stage, was that a constraint guided me. I, I'd found my way to this subject matter, which was the later years of Alan Turing and his, um, his sense of himself as man in pain, suffering something that didn't fall strictly within the purview of the material science to which he was so wedded. Um, you know, I, I was wondering, so Turing's arrested for having sex with a man. Um, the, the, the terms of his probation are that he takes um, this organotherapy, this punitive hormone therapy, he grows breasts, um, commits suicide two days later, two years later. And I wondered what that sort of um, 
personal uh, transformation and, and pain would be like for somebody who viewed the world through the lens of third party scientific method, who took the removal of nuance and personal bias and opinion from his work so seriously. What would it be like for that or a person like that to feel such exquisitely personal pain? Would, you know, and I'm sure he was aware of the irony. So in a way, the whole book is strung upon a dawning sense of the horror of that irony, that all this time, all his sort of brilliance about computing machinery and intelligence is suddenly um, derailed by the personal experience, which doesn't and sort of can't figure in his worldview. And so the whole book is about that aspect of the self that is never expressed by a life and how it finds belated expression. And maybe it is an accident or a coincidence and, and maybe not, but at the time I was writing it, I was in a lot of physical pain myself. And it suddenly struck me so forcefully that when you are in a lot of constant pain, it's very difficult to communicate it to other people, that your physical body won't necessarily betray um, the condition you're really in. Yeah. So the writing became about that. And it, uh, and we've talked, you know, in this little conversation quite a bit about the gaps and the spaces between laughter and pain and, and between presenting as one thing and actually feeling another. And the, it, it just seemed to me a subject worth writing about. And if I could get it, if I could get to the end of it, a subject that would interest people. Now, I should say that it actually didn't. It, it wasn't at any point a bestseller. But um, I kind of knew that I th or thought I knew that I was doing something that was in, that that there was a worthwhile and important experiment. And I think that's the purest reason for doing difficult things like that. Not that people will like it in the end, not that you think they'll, they'll buy it particularly or that it will win an award, but ultimately that for, for reasons that must always remain mysterious, this thing has to be done. And that's yeah, what I, I think that's there. brilliantly that, well, that's very brilliantly and, and very, eloquently put and particularly also when you talk about a worthwhile experiment and I think the the sense of continuing to experiment is really crucial I think in any form you know I, I at the weekend I was at the William Kentridge exhibition at the Royal Academy which is absolutely amazing I must go and see it because he's a you know, it's brilliant yeah. it's brilliant and his continual sense of exploring form and content at the same time in so many different ways and and that's what i i love about your work it, it, it's endlessly fluid in that sense but i can totally relate to the the notion of restriction or you know that that for me is a very as someone who improvises a lot i'm you're you're reliant all the time on restriction totally i mean no, um, it never comes out of nowhere i mean i think i think the sort of great misconception about um you know improvisation is that it's uh uh it, it, you know it, it's sort of thoughtless spontaneity and it's not it's the, it's the reverse yeah. of that 
And I think exactly. I think and it becomes clear that it's sort of verse if you think of it in musical terms, I think, you know, that's you yes. know, then you realize that actually there's sort of no such thing really as Im improvisation in that pejorative sense, because it's just a kind of more immediate and present composition. But you're drawing on everything yes. you already know and think about something. Yeah. And that's your that those are your grounds of knowledge. And in acting, they are your inhabitants of this thing that's your body and your awareness of its of its changing nature and its age and its the things it can do and the things it can't do. And and as soon as you think of those two things, actually a world of emotion opens up for you, whether you're creating a character in the moment or whether you're playing a character that's been scripted. No, I absolutely, I, I totally agree. Um, with with uh, when we last chatted or recently chatted, you mentioned the notion that there might be some interest in uh, uh, an adaptation of Murmur. Is that still the case, or uh, you mentioned a film possibility? <laughs> uh, if you can't speak about it, that's absolutely no. Fine. I can. I can speak about it. Um, yeah, I'm. <laughs> so <laughs> I wrote. Um, I was commissioned to write a film. Uh, version of it and I did that I duly wrote a, a screenplay and then it was felt that the screenplay would sit better as a three-part tv series and so I've expanded it into a three-part tv series and now it's felt that its natural form is as a single feature again so I've got to okay. sort of do a third draft um uh I actually really like the commissioning uh producer seven screen who's who's taken this on I mean you know it's not you know i'm i'm not doing it for free and he's he's taking a real risk with it so i really take my hat off to him um but at the same time i'm a bit nervous because i don't know how much you once you get to your third draft or something like that i i'm wondering how much i have left in the tank in terms of reinvention of the original material yeah it's interesting yeah, isn't it? so. and and also I mean, I'm, I, I am fascinated because it, it, it exists so brilliantly in the form it is. And then, of course, I'm then intrigued to, to how it could then be reinvented in another form. It, it, it's, it's very, very different. Uh, it's very different. And, and, and my hope is that it would be visually very exciting. Um, yes, that's that's immediately what I yeah. have it think about. You think the opportunity for an extraordinary visual interpretation yeah. of that story with the right people could be. Yeah, a... I think the difficulty is that the first two drafts I've done is it's so out there in terms yeah. of the things yeah. I'm asking for. It's it's through composed, I and mean, you go from scene to scene, and you're never quite in the real world, and you're never quite in the you know Alec Pryor's head. But but of course, ultimately, you have to get films funded. And, yes. <laughs> and in a way, the in a way, the question is not so much is is this is this well or wonderfully imagined, um, as can people who are going to give you some money read the script and immediately see what they think the film might look like. Yes, uh, which means you have to compromise. Yes, in inevitably, as you can imagine, well, Paul, I... I'm not very good at it. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I I look forward to continuing this conversation about the journey from uh, from page to the screen. We started by talking about German expressionism and and those amazing uh, Hollywood movies, and and now we we come full circle with maybe an audacious yeah, uh, attempt to adapting that extraordinary. And I say to all the listeners, if you haven't read it, you must read it. It's extraordinary. It now, Will, just before we go, I, I always do this. I ask some random questions. You just need to say the, the first answer that comes into yeah, your yeah. head. It requires no thought. Here we go. Cary Grant or James Mason? James Mason. Boat to New York or the Orient Express? The Orient Express. Uh, uh, this is on Disney, Walt Disney. Snow White or Pinocchio? Snow White. This on flowers, freesias, or lilies? Lilies. The flowers of death. Virginia Woolf or Angela Carter? <laughs> <laughs> Virginia Woolf or Angela Carter? Uh, Virginia Woolf. But Virginia Woolf for a specific reason. I mean, I, I actually love Angela Carter's fiction, but I think Virginia Woolf's best books, two books, are The Common Reader, volumes one and two. The criticism, I don't know them. I will go and seek the, them out. The, the best, um, some of the best literary criticism I've ever read. Right, I will do that. I have three more: Margate or Whitstable. Margate. Lucille Ball or Goldie Horn. Very difficult. Lucille Ball. Very <laughs> difficult because actually, both very good. Lucille Ball, I think. Okay. And finally, it's a, a more of an existential question. Crime or punishment? Crime. <laughs> Will, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure and, and so fascinating to hear you talk about your work and how it arrives. And um, and let's do a, a, a non-recorded social at the BFI. That would be really great. Thank you, Paul, so much. I'm really indebted to you. Not at all. Thank you. Have a good evening. Bye -bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Dear listeners, if you've enjoyed this idiot podcast, please spread the word 